Welcome to the Everyday Charlotte podcast, where we believe education is not simply for school hours, but an everyday learning lifestyle. On this podcast, I read a variety of living educational materials, including books in the public domain you can use to supplement your learning. Handbook of Nature Study by Anna Botsford Comstock Part 1 The Relation of Nature Study to Science Nature study is not elementary science as so taught because its point of attack is not the same. Error in this respect has caused many a teacher to abandon nature study and many a pupil to hate it. In elementary science, the work begins with the simplest animals and plants and progresses logically through the highest forms, At least this is the method pursued in most universities and schools. The object of this study is to give the pupils an outlook over all the forms of life and their relation to one another. In nature study, the work begins with any plant or creature which chances to interest the pupil. It begins with the robin when it comes back to us in March, promising spring, or it begins with a maple leaf which flutters to the round in all the beauty of its autumnal tints. A course in biological science leads to the comprehension of all kinds of life under our globe. Nature study is for the comprehension of the individual life of the bird, insect, or plant that is nearest at hand. Nature study is perfectly good science within its limits, but it is not meant to be more profound or comprehensive than the capabilities of the child's mind. More than all, nature study is not science belittled as if it were to be looked at through the reversed opera glass in order to bring it down small enough for the child to play with. Nature study, as far as it goes, is just as large as is science for grown-ups and may deal with the same subject matter and should be characterized by the same accuracy. It simply does not go so far. To illustrate, if we are teaching the science of ornithology, we take first the Archaeopteryx, then the swimming and the scratching birds, and finally reaching the songbirds, studying each as a part of the whole. Nature study begins with the robin because the child sees it and is interested in it and he notes the things about the habits and appearance of the robin that may be perceived by intimate observation. In fact, he discovers for himself all that the most advanced book of ornithology would give concerning the ordinary habits of this one bird. The next bird studied may be the turkey in the barnyard, or the duck on the pond, or the screech owl in the spruces, if any of these happen to impinge upon his notice and interest. However, such nature study makes for the best of scientific ornithology, because by studying the individual birds thus thoroughly, the pupil finally studies a sufficient number of forms so that his knowledge, thus assembled, gives him a better comprehension of birds as a whole than could be obtained by the routine study of the same. Nature study does not start out with the classification given in books, but in the end it builds up a classification in the child's mind which is based on fundamental knowledge. It is a classification like that evolved by the first naturalists. It is built on careful personal observations of both form and life. Nature study, not for drill. If nature study is made a drill, its pedagogic value is lost. When it is properly taught, the child is unconscious of mental effort or that he is suffering the act of teaching. As soon as nature study becomes a task, it should be dropped. 
But how could it ever be a task to see that the sky is blue, or the dandelion golden, or to listen to the oriole and the elm? What to do with the pupil not interested in nature study subjects is a problem that confronts many earnest teachers. Usually the reason for this lack of interest is the limited range of subjects used for nature study lessons. Often the teacher insists upon flowers as the lesson subject, when toads or snakes would prove the key to the door of the child's interest. But whatever the cause may be, there is only one right way out of this difficulty. The child not interested should be kept at his regular schoolwork and not admitted as a member of the nature study class, where his influence is always demoralizing. He had much better be learning his spelling lesson than learning to hate nature through being obliged to study subjects in which he is not interested. In general, it is safe to assume that the pupil's lack of interest in nature study is owing to a fault in the teacher's method. She may be trying to fill the child's mind with facts, when she should be leading him to observe these for himself, which is a most entertaining occupation for the child. It should always be borne in mind that mere curiosity is always impertinent, and that it is never more than when exercised in the realm of nature. A genuine interest should be the basis of the study of the lives of plants and lower animals. Curiosity may elicit facts, but only real interest may mold these facts into wisdom. When to give the lesson. There are two theories concerning the time when a nature study lesson should be given. Some teachers believe that it should be a part of the regular routine. Others have found it of greatest value if reserved for that period of the school day when the pupils are weary and restless, and the teacher's nerves are strained to the snapping point. The lesson on a tree, insect, or flower at such a moment affords immediate relief for everyone. It is a mental excursion from which all return refreshed and ready to finish the duties of the day. While I am convinced that the use of the nature study lesson for mental refreshment makes it of greatest value, yet I realize fully that if it is relegated to such periods, it may not be given at all. It might be better to give it at a regular period, late in the day, for there is strength and sureness in regularity. The teacher is much more likely to prepare herself for the lesson if she knows that it is required at a certain time. The length of the lesson. The nature study lesson should be short and sharp and may vary from 10 minutes to a half hour in length. There should be no dawdling. If it is an observation lesson, only a few points should be noted and the meaning for the observations made clear. If an outline be suggested for field observation, it should be given in an inspiring manner which shall make each pupil anxious to see and read the truth for himself. The nature story, when properly read, is never finished. It is always at an interesting point continued in our next. The teacher may judge as to her own progress in nature study by the length of time she is glad to spend in reading from the nature's book what is therein written. As she progresses, she finds those hours spent in studying nature speed faster, until a day thus spent seems but an hour. The author can think of nothing she would so gladly do as to spend days and months with the birds, bees, and flowers, with no obligation for telling what she should see. There is more than mere information in hours thus spent. Lowell describes them well when he says, Those odd days when the balancing of a yellow butterflies or a thistle bloom was spiritual food and lodging for the whole afternoon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Everyday Charlotte Podcast. We hope you will join us for another great read on our next episode. God bless you all.